It's Europe Calling with Terry Whitehead and Vince Tracy. Very good day. Welcome, everybody. It's Vince and Terry and Europe Calling. And our date is the 26th of October 2023. We're still relatively hot here. It is cooling down just a little bit. It looks a little bit autumnal during the day, or at least the last couple of days have. Um, And our definition on the mountain looking good. I'm going due west, roughly three quarters of an hour. Sensible driving and... uh, a very good day and welcome to Terry. Terry, so uh, your weather, is it like ours? I presume so. I've not ventured out today, to be honest with you. It's bloody cold. Well, I'll say it's cold. There's <coughs> it a, it a cold breeze and uh, I've got a bit of a cough and a cold. So. Interesting. Such a man flu, as we know it. <coughs> so well, uh, I've stayed indoors and stopped myself in my office. Well, the, the reason why I said it's interesting is because um, I was singing last week. Um, I got home got the sniffles and about four days of it so like yourself i've stayed indoors um but i managed a few songs last night so uh, let's um let's hit the headlines and find out where we're going this, this week okay Well, interestingly enough, our first name that we're looking is uh, Therese Coffee, but we don't spell coffee the same way. Um, and uh, raising more than a few eyebrows when she appeared to blame Storm Babette's flooding, uh, this is in the UK, on rain coming from the wrong direction. During a quizzing by MPs, the Cabinet Minister suggested that Britain was less prepared for recent downpours because they came from the east and not the west. She explained that forecasters are very good at predicting showers which sweep in from the Atlantic, but added, this was rain coming from the other way, and we don't have quite as much experience on that. So later on, it went on to tell me Richard Allen, a professor in climate science at the University of Reading, said weather forecasting models don't care about the direction. Uh, he told the newspapers it is uncommon for the drier eastern side of the UK to experience such an intense and prolonged deluge, but our weather forecasts are packed full of the most complete observations in physics which don't care about the direction, and so were able to make valuable and high-quality predictions. Lee Chapman, a a professor of climate change resilience at the University of Birmingham, agreed. Weather forecasting doesn't care if rain comes from the east or west. He added, it is true that the east of the UK has significantly less rainfall than other parts of the UK, However, this is no bearing on the intensity or duration of the rainfall that is received during an event. The fact that Brekin, one of the worst affected places by the storm Babette, has flooded numerous times previously confirms there are no reasons for the east to be less prepared than any parts of the country. I don't know about you, Terry. I get the impression when we start getting government ministers involved and all this sort of thing, I think that it's almost like Britain wants to blame somebody for natural phenomenon all the time. Um, I mean, do you get that sort of opinion as well? Listen, when you're in government, you always blame somebody else. It's never your problem, is it? <laughs> um, and Therese Coffey, I do like her funny. I think she's a, a spirited lady. Um but, yeah, she's probably batting on some sort of uh, reasonable wicket there in what she's saying. Um, but one thing I did pick up on, funny enough, in one of the weather forecasts this week for that area, is that they said there will be, uh, they were predicting 20 centimetres of rain. Now, if I tell you in the whole of the year here in Spain, on your roof, 40 centimetres doesn't fall, just under. 39 centimetres on average year will fall on your roof throughout a year. Now, the, the BBC weather lady was predicting that half of, of, of our equivalent to half of our annual rainfall was going to fall in one day on, on, on Brecon. And uh, 
It appears that it did. So I don't think it really matters which direction it was coming from, Vince. But when you get 20 centimetres of rain drop on your on your doorstep, then just down the hill next door, he's got 40 centimetres. He's got your 20 plus his 20. And guess what? The guy after him has got 60 centimetres. So it doesn't take long before we get massive floods, which obviously happen. So I don't think it was anything to do with the direction it was coming from. It yeah. was the amount that was dropping. Yeah. And I don't know. Is it... <laughs> is, it, is it climate warming? I don't know. They'll, they'll blame on everything. I'm, I'm still convinced that the weather centres every morning they chuck a load of bones on the carpet and try and read the runes, you know, before they pull out an, an official forecast. Well, I think that they do, in a general sense, they do a marvellous job. Um, I, I think to try to predict rain must be extremely difficult, although I do Not remember... in England. It's, it's, it's predicting no rain is difficult in England. Huh. It's easy to predict rain in England every day. It's it's you you. I mean, I don't know what the average rainfall is. You know how many days per year in certain areas that it rains. But certainly, my experience of being up in Scotland and certainly being in Manchester. I've never been in Manchester and it hasn't had rain running down the back of my neck. Yeah. But um, rain is 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 the thing that does happen. I think predicting two or three unrainy days is probably the hardest thing to do. It's just the nature of the Atlantic and the Gulf Stream. Pushing yeah. uh, uh, hot, warm waters towards our coast, which which rise up into the air, hit the cold air coming from the Arctic, and then the hot water rising off the sea and cold air makes rain. And guess what? To the middle is 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 the UK. I offer they never give a mention on on the on the on the on the British weather forecast about Ireland. We, I always have to look at Ireland because they get far more than we do. Wow. No wonder the grass is greener. Good God. I suppose, really, it's a, it's a similar situation to Spain, not mentioning Portugal, really. Um, yeah, well, it doesn't exist, does it? <laughs> well, <laughs> Even they, you know, they always show the map of Spain without Portugal on it. Yes. Big I mean, I remember talking with Michael Frost, and uh, we did a podcast, and um, I, I didn't major on this. He brought, I think he brought the thing up, actually, was that uh, he was the weather forecaster that missed the 1987 um, yeah, the hurricane, you know, and yeah. really, I would have thought that if you can miss something like that, then you can miss fish, anything. Michael fish. Yeah, Michael yeah. Fish, no, yeah, well, yeah, you, you don't expect it. I mean, he he, he must have thought there's a possibility of a, of a hurricane. No, it can't be. That never happens in Britain. Mm. You know, oh, that can't be right. It'll it'll just it'll peter out. It won't happen. So yeah, famously, he came up with that um, his forecast and. Uh, I bet he's lived out on that on, on dinners ever since. Yeah, well, he also told me that he expected this part of the world uh, to go more and more arid, and based around uh, those comments, I mean, uh, am I that surprised that we don't get that much rainfall? I suppose, really, it's quite surprising that we get well, it's what we do. It's failing us every every year, Vince. I mean, we're all praying now. We've got a, a short rain spell, which we haven't had. We didn't get the September. Heavy rains, which we the Gosofria, which is quite common. There's been rains uh, further inland, but that's the main thing because it fills up the aquifers and fills up the rivers that run this way. And then when they get to the rivers, get to this end, we've got some nice dams which collect it. So uh, it's it's no good at raining on top of our houses. It's got to rain further inland. Yeah, but it's still not happening in any great uh, amounts. And once it's a whole lottery that it's very worrying that come May and we haven't had any rain. Um, but we've, you know, people are literally predicting um, uh, standpipes uh, and water, which we've had in years gone by. Remember back in the eighties, uh, seventies, back in the seventies, we had uh, a number of, uh, of weeks um, with, with severe water restrictions, where we only had water one hour a day. It came on at midnight for an hour, mm-hmm. and then it was shut off again. And imagine that in in July and August in Benidorm, yeah. you got a bar that was very pleasant. Mm-hmm. So uh, he just had to drink beer. He couldn't do anything yeah. else. It does surprise me that the company uh, countries, in a general sense, haven't had more um, attention paid to water and the way... Well, I think we've discussed this in the past anyway. Uh, you know, uh, I think it was you that told me that it was Franco that actually uh, arranged for some of the reservoirs. All of them. He built them all. It's some unknown reason. I can never work out why. He, he, he realised that uh, for the for the coastal areas um, to be productive in any manner or form in the future, be it agriculturally or industrially, they need water. So he went around building virtually all the dams that you see today 
are because of uh, Francisco Franco, uh, the great dictator of Spain who, who, uh, who built them. Um, so we've got something to be thankful for. Not a lie, obviously, went around shooting a lot of everybody else, but uh, he, uh, he, he certainly did that. He had the foresight to do that. And if he hadn't, well, Bennington wouldn't exist. Yeah. Okay, well, what, what I did uh, forget to do is obviously preface our podcast with our hopes and prayers that uh, something something might change in the Middle East. Uh, sadly, it hasn't, and I've picked up a couple of things from the newspapers which I think we could discuss. Uh, let's see. Let's go to the first one. Okay, so uh, it was about a heated exchange and um, Naftali Bennett, who is an uh, ex-Prime Minister in Israel, told the Sunday with Laura Kinsberg programme, I understand the BBC has taken the Gazan side because all your questions are only about the Gazan civilians. Uh, Then further on, host Victoria Derbyshire interjected, that's not true, before the politician continued referencing Israeli families murdered by Hamas terrorists on October the 7th. You haven't asked one question about those children from the beginning of this interview. It seems you care very little about them. Ms. Derbyshire then protests. Before I spoke to you, Mr. Bennett, I spoke to a veteran Palestinian politician and I asked her about the massacre of Israeli civilians in southern Israel. Moments later, the extremely tense interview is abruptly cut short as Mr. Bennett, speaking from Tel Aviv, disappears amid sentence. Now, I do think that we have some very uh, conflicting. Um, sort of media interests at work at the moment. Um, y- you know, the one thing I certainly picked up in Spain uh, when I was watching this morning is that it does appear that the uh, Spanish, uh, in a general sense, in the media, seem to uh, obviously take more of a a look at what's going on right now. I suppose as it progresses, probably this would always have been the case anyway. Um, But, I mean, realistically, I'll go to look at another article when Peter Hitchens was saying, uh, last week I said uh, Israel's attack on Gaza is a mistake, mainly because it will probably not work and because it will allow millions of people to start loathing (coughs) Israel again. They cannot do this at this moment. As long as the memory of Hamas killers striding into peaceful villages and slaughtering unarmed civilians and even babies still lingers in the mind of the public, Israel will have the support of millions and most of its opponents will keep their voices down. I did not realise how quickly my prediction would come true. As soon as Israel began its bombardment of Gaza, the uh, superbly cynical global anti-Israel propaganda machine whirred smoothly into action and Israel was transformed in a few hours from victim to villain. The Hamas murderers are already starting to be forgotten, yet maybe something may still be rescued. If the retaliation against Gaza cannot be undone, Perhaps it can be reversed and halted. But is there any true statesmanship or political courage to be found in Israel? I do not myself join in the easy, modish condemnation of the Israeli Prime Minister, uh, Premier, sorry, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu. He is an unusually intelligent and experienced man, one of the very few major figures in world politics who has actually been wounded in combat. This is perhaps the most profound form of experience available in a world where most Western leaders have never faced anything tougher than a selection meeting at a university final exam. Okay, um, what do you think of the way the media seem to be handling this? um, You know, I suppose that you're going to have sides whichever way you look at this, aren't you? Well, I think the most wonderful thing that's come about over the last three weeks is that war in the Ukraine has completely ceased. Yes, yes. Absolutely nothing at all going on there. Yeah. I think that's absolutely wonderful. Um, You tell me how all the reporters now get switched to Israel uh, and the Gaza Strip from 
they're now no longer in in, uh, in Kiev and, and the Ukraine. Not a mention of Ukraine. Not one word. Not one item. You draw the press. You try and find anything. Nothing. Yeah. What's that about? But what the hell's controlling the, the media? This is the worrying part. Not so much what's in the media. Is who's controlling it, and why, and how? It is really disgusting. And I look at. I follow a lot of American news stations as well. And that's really amazing. You follow Fox News and you follow some of the others. It's just black and white, chalk and cheese. But it's, it's, at least you get two sides of a story. But there's nothing happened in the Ukraine. Yeah, in Israel, that, that was a shocking attack. But it was obviously, as I said last week, it was obviously well uh, planned. And that this takes a lot of time. To fire, bring in 5,000 missiles, never mind fire them, into Israel without anybody knowing, absolute load of hogwash. As far as I'm concerned, uh, Netanyahu's under a massive amount of pressure at the moment because for, for corruption charges they want to bring against him. And he's, he's desperately trying to change the laws of Israel so that he can't be brought to book for corruption charges whilst he's in office. So uh, that's, and he's, to me, a good war is a good way of... Uh, diverting the the, the, the the action against him, uh, which I, I just feel it's impossible that the Mossad did not know that this was going to happen. Not only that, they did not happen. Well, the different kibbutzes, when the, they've all got safe rooms, etc., and reported the fact there was a, they were being attacked, there were, there were no military there to, to help them. They didn't come. What's that about? They were slaughtered. It's, it, I might be reading the bones a bit wrong here, or it'd make a bloody good book where a president will completely ignore the intelligence of his uh, of his staff regarding a well-known country that attack, that regularly attacks them, and allow an attack to happen, and somehow stop his own soldiers from defending the kibbutzes where they're being attacked. I, I just someone's got to ask that question. Um, but it really is. I can't wait for the book. It'd be a good one, and the film would be fantastic. Having said that, talk about Netanyahu. Yeah, of course he was in the raid on Entebbe. He was injured in that. He, he took part in the raid. He's the only, the only, probably the only living politician who, who's actually got some street cred regarding that. But he's always been known as a warmonger. He always has been. He's always been, in his previous life as as, as, as president, he, he's, he's always had the same uh, attitude. He's very much a warmonger, uh, and I don't think talking uh, peace is in his. He'll have to go before that would happen. He would have to be shifted from office before any peace. But. There can never be peace in Israel, as I, as is rightly said, if Hamas are allowed to exist, he has to get rid of Hamas. Well, you can't do that. He's got to know if every Hamas guy they shoot, there's three more spring up because you're going to affect some family and that family's going to react and breed three more, bring up three more new terrorists. So you're not going to beat them. The only way to beat them is for the people of Palestine, in inverted commas, the people of the Gaza Strip, to rise against Hamas. And in my own mind, that's, I think, is what he's trying to do. He's trying to put Gaza under so much pressure regarding no fuel, no water, no food, the bombings that are going on, to get them to react against Hamas. Hamas, who have potloads and shed loads of money. No one ever asks where that money comes from, but we all know it comes from, from Iran and a few other places. They've got loads of money. They can go out and buy anything they want to relieve the suffering in Gaza. No, they don't. doesn't happen. They they want the suffering in Gaza to continue, but it, need, it needs the, the people of Gaza to to, to rise against the, the, these these cruel, evil, medieval terrorists uh, once and for all and get rid of them. If we go along the the road of maybe what you think is near you know near the truth, um, I must admit that the more that you look now at the the scale of the bombing it would have made far more sense to me to stop the bombing and give a chance to the um hostages to be released uh, two, two women is not releasing the hostages there are two ladies well into their 80s uh, that that doesn't solve what is the outrage which has happened already um the amount of bombing and the amount of damage to the Palestinians, shall we say, um, because basically we don't know if there's even any Hamas 
who have been killed in this bombing, all we do know and we can see quite clearly is that there is a mood now where more people see that innocent people or should we say seemingly innocent people are now being bombed indiscriminately and I think you can see where Peter, Peter Hitchens' articles seemed to be heading towards really, I mean it, it really it not it's not going to be doing Israel's cause an awful lot of good when you've got not at all. But that, this is where they've always been in the sixty-seven, the six-day, nineteen sixty-seven, the six-day war, which is one of the shortest wars in history. Uh, very brutal, very hard, uh, and they they won tremendous amounts of territory. To be honest with you, uh, and then in seventy-three, um, which dragged on a bit longer, they weren't quite so much prepared for that. Dragged on a bit longer. It's it's always been sort of mass bombing and recriminations, and we'll get over the bad news of that after. Um, at least they've told, I mean, it's a hell of a thing, telling people uh, um, to, to re remove themselves from that part of Gaza because they're going to bomb it. And basically, if you still live there, you've been warned. Um, so it's, 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 on the one hand, they've said, look, we warned everybody, to get out because we're going to bomb there. Because, well, what we're worried about is a, is a massive tunnel system that apparently the terrorists use. And um, by bombing it, and presumably they're, they're, they're deep bombs that are going in, that will destroy the tunnels, tunnel systems and make uh, it a bit easier to take control of that area. But my problem is uh, I don't see Israel allowing the, the, the people of Gaza back into that area at all. I think that'll become part of Israel. That'll become... a, 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 a uh, they call it a, a zone where you, you cannot enter the word for them. There'll be a zone um, between the two countries, shall we? There will be Gaza, not a country. And hmm. Between the uh, between the two countries, between the two warring factions, that'll be a no-go area. It'll just be left desolate and it'll be raised to the ground. So hmm. nobody's going to cross from that without being seen or heard. Uh, I think that's exactly what will happen there. No one's going to go back and live there. I mean, it's almost so like basically the... they're just pushing the people that live there, that live on the Gaza Strip, out into, well, into Egypt, I presume, or into Jordan or whatever. When, when you actually look at, at this, uh, it's not quite as indiscriminate bombing as probably could be done. Um, but, I mean, you, you know, Russia has been ex exceptionally quiet and they've been behind a lot of things that's been going on in Syria, for, for example. Uh, mm. you, you know, you've already <laughs> identified uh, Iran as one of the biggest uh, problems, you've he, he also got um, uh, North Korea um, apparently providing um, military armament towards Hamas, and of course uh, next to come down the line will probably be uh, Hezbollah. You know, it's not going to be a very good outcome, and uh, I think the best thing I can do is find another topic for the moment. I don't think we could have made a podcast without talking about it. No, because no. But, but the thing that we're not talking about is the fact nothing's happening in Ukraine. That yeah. is what we should be... Obviously, what's happening in the Middle East is, is, is shocking. <coughs> but this has been going on for years in the Ukraine, you know, and... Um, and there's obviously the last weeks there isn't nothing happening in the Ukraine. It's you know, war is over. Well, I've read a couple of articles about uh, Russian uh, strikes against. Um, there was one against a postal centre, wasn't there? Um, which uh, seemed seemed really a bit of an innocuous uh, target. Um, but uh, like you say, not that much information coming in. So. I'm going no. off to the UK next, Terry. So okay. let me just put a little bit of music uh, together and we'll go off to the UK. So we're looking at a farmer next and uh, this farmer has been paid almost £1.5 million of public money to stop rearing pigs. Now, this is to allow 5,000 new homes to be built, and the deal is part of a move to reduce the amount of harmful nutrients flowing into waterways. This is all in Norfolk, uh, and the idea mm -hmm. to get house building moving again. The pig farm is on either side of the A47 bypass south of Norwich, 
By closing it down, the reduction in pollution means that officials will be able to grant permission for 5,000 homes elsewhere in the county. The, the article where later goes on, the government attempted to stop the reckless plan, arguing it would hold up much-needed house building, but it was forced through by the House of Lords, by Labour, Lib Dem peers, and the huge deal in Norfolk has now raised concerns that farmers elsewhere will be paid to effectively sit on their hands, while the UK's food security, the amount of homegrown produce available for our tables, will be further weakened. Local authorities cannot approve new developments in some areas unless they offset the environmental impact caused by new homes, including increased sewage and detergents from washing machines. Councils have been looking for schemes that meet this requirement, and Norfolk's solution was to pay the farmer to stop rearing the pigs. The authorities will pay him through Norfolk Environmental Credits Limited, but hope uh, to claw back the money from developers who will pay NEC Limited for environmental credits, giving them the right to build their housing schemes. Seen as environmentally <coughs> neutral scheme, the farmer will essentially be paid to stop polluting waterways and balance out the pollution <coughs> that comes from new homes. Now, uh, one of the comments that I thought would be worth starting with, this is very dangerous. We need our food security more than housing. We cannot rely on other countries to provide us food, particularly with the current state of affairs in the Middle East. Trust me when I say they will feed their own and uh, first as they should. This is all being done by design and farmers are being paid not to farm. Society needs to be questioning our leaders over this. So, um, I think I agree with that comment. Um, what do you think? Well, I'm surprised that the Middle East has any effect on pig farming. I don't think there's an awful lot of pigs reared and sold into the UK from the Middle East, but anyway. Well, no, um, there's an what? interesting point there. You, you, you know, by default, you've made a very interesting point. Because, um, you know, you have some of the British love their pork, but a certain amount of the British living in certain parts of the country and following certain religion would be very happy for it not to be farmed. So, yeah, by, that, that is just a passing consideration. Fine. Um, I don't see a lot of prawns in Israel either, do they? But it's, uh, thank you, I love prawns. I love pigs. I, I, I eat them, I eat most things as it happens. It's, it makes sense, to be honest with you, Vince. Um, I know it sounds a bit silly to pay a pig farmer not to breed pigs, not to, yeah, breed pigs. Uh, but it does actually make sense. Pigs, um, but we always class them as a, a dirty animal. That's why certain religions, um, both parties involved in the work of the Middle East, uh, class them as, as unclean animals. Um, but in actual fact, they are quite clean. They actually they, they eat a lot of the rubbish. We would normally be discarding into tips. You can give it to a pig, and he'll, he will actually um, change it to something green or brown. But um, yeah, you, the 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 effluent that can run off um, always um, from uh, uh, we obviously must be talking about a large pig farm because a handful of pigs is not going to cause a problem. But when you're you're, you're breeding um, pigs, same with chickens, the uh, what goes in one end comes out the other, and it, and it, it has to be dispatched in a correct manner and invariably i suppose it's not it just runs off and runs into the the the, the underground walk waterways the aquifers gets into rivers and can cause all sorts of damage so wouldn't it be easier to my mind to pay that pig farmer to move to another area where geographically there wouldn't be a problem uh, regarding the pig effluence causing any sort of damage and giving that land over to the housing that's desperately need, I think that would be by far probably the cheapest way of doing it, rather than paying him not to not to uh, breed his pigs. Uh, and, and that way, everyone's happy. He's got he's still got his pig farm. We've still got pork coming in. Thank you. And and that area of Norfolk has got a nice housing estate. Everyone's a winner. What's the problem, Terry? Am I um, am I being a bit dim here? But if you've got 5,000 houses, yeah. are they going to be producing any environmental p pollution? Not at all. No, it all, it's all, it's, you know, it all comes, it all, everyone will be defecating in small plastic bags. They'll be collected from the houses on a, on a daily basis. Of course they do. 
And this, this is the biggest problem, is that we, we, people, chuck more, <laughs> chuck more crap into the, literally, into the rivers and streams of Britain than pigs do. We're the dirty ones, and it has to be treated. It can be treated. It, it's sadly, in the UK, unlike here in Spain, uh, in the UK, there's, there's scant uh, effort made to clean, clean the sewage. I mean, yeah, you've got sewage farms, but, but as we know, they just discharge everything into the local streams and rivers and sea and always have been doing it and been getting away with it for years. And they've been paid not to do it, but they still do it. That, that's probably one of the biggest scandals ever to come out. We're, we're, we've yet to get to the bottom of it. And I hope somebody does, pardon the pun. I hope somebody does get to the bottom of it. But it's, it, it's, um, you're quite right. We, we are the ones, the pigs must be thinking, what have we done wrong? <laughs> those, those buggers those, in those 5,000 houses is going to cause more, more crap than we do. But that would be the logical thing to do, would it not? As you move farming areas to farming areas. So farming moves to proper farming areas where uh, it's going to be perfect for the farmer, wherever you are actually farming. And we would be obviously be talking about animals, pigs and cattle, uh, chickens, etc. Where there is a massive amount of the excrement that needs to be uh, cleaned up. Uh, move those to areas where geographically, geologically, it wouldn't be causing a problem. But I mean, it's almost like None of the politicians seem able to learn anything from history. Um, I, I can remember when I was doing my studying, uh, uh, donkey's years ago I'm talking about, but I can remember that uh, Britain wasn't self-sufficient in its food and that obviously they had to start bringing in uh, schemes for upland farming and making sure that we had sheep raising, uh, you know, and, and all this sort of thing. Whereas... At the moment, all I can see, and again, I might be being naive, but I can see 100,000 people who uh, shouldn't be in the country being allowed to be in the country, uh, and therefore they will be needing housing at some time in the future, um, and at the expense of the, dare I say, the indigenous population not having its food. Uh, I think the thing is not the best of ideas, personally. Oh, but those 100,000 people are certainly aren't eating pork. Well, I don't so the pigs are quite happy. Well, I, no, I don't um, know, because basically we, we don't know what these 100,000 people are doing because they're in hotels at the moment, aren't they? And some of them uh, are in hotels, others are in holding places. I mean, you know, what, what on earth really is going on? Because I think this all links in. I think somewhere in that little jig, a huge jigsaw puzzle, uh, this has got to be in the picture. I mean, if you're looking at what's happening in Spain, you've got a new uh, path coming in for uh, these guys coming in from dangerous play, uh, places across the sea into uh, the islands, the Canary Islands, then being flown mm. up to Madrid. And then uh, from Madrid, they get flown into other parts of Spain or, or, or further beyond. I mean, there's a picture here which really you don't always see the first link in the chain, but the the links are there, aren't they? Oh, there's no doubt about it. And I'll, I'll predict this: there's obviously going to be a general election around about the next twelve months, and I'll, I'll predict that before that there'll be um, massive success in the government's uh, repatriating um, the illegal immigrants that, that are flooding in. You know, the, i.e., the flights to Rwanda and wherever else is uh, is going to happen, um, because they need they need that to win an election, and they won't be pulling that off until they're ready to call an election. Then they'll pull it off because then they need to get votes. So it's all down to politics. At the end of the day, it's all down to power and money. And what about what about here in Spain? I'll throw this one in now because as it's so relevant, because this is so political. Um, are we anywhere near getting a, a government which can actually start working again properly? No. Well, they've got till is it twenty seventh of this month? No, is it coming it's twenty seventh of this month or November? That uh, Pedro Sanchez has to uh, muster um, enough. Uh, parties together to form a 176 majority, which he hasn't got. Uh, he's hoping to get it by using the Catalans, but I don't think that's going to happen. So that means it'll be uh, another general election on is it January the 14th, I think. There'll be another general election in January, when hopefully one or the other parties 
gets a, a result. It doesn't matter who, to be honest with you. It doesn't make any difference to me. My no. life never changes, irrespective of whichever party's in. My life never changes. If I had a massive company, then it probably would, but I don't. Mm. I'm just one of the poor buggers who have to chuck the money into the pot. Well, if we can switch... So, if we sw- it's irrespective of who gets in for me, that's all I'm saying. But I think it will be another election called on the January the 14th. OK, and, and if we switch quickly back to the UK, <coughs> where Keir Starmer is now finding that numbers of his own MPs are totally and utterly split in between whether they give support uh, to the anti-Semitic uh, point of view or whether or not they go down the line of... Well, su- he's done it again, hasn't he? The man... Listen, God forbid he ever becomes Prime Minister. I don't care if the Labour win the next election. It doesn't matter to me. But again, because it will be the same mayhem but a different colour. The, but that guy as Prime Minister, that guy with the attaché case in front of him with the buttons in it, the whole world will know he will never press that button. So that's the wrong people in, uh, who could attack us. We're going to think we'll, we'll have a do, we'll have a go at this. He, he cannot make a decision. Well, he does make a decision, but he changes it all the time. He doesn't remember what decisions he's been told to make. Somebody tells him the decisions he has to make, and he comes out with it, and he blurbs it out. And then the next day, he, he changes it and tries to say, oh, well, I didn't actually say that. And this is because he's, he's made reference to um, not calling for a ceasefire in the Middle East, and that Israel has a right to defend itself. But of course it does. But then he's automatically alienating people in his party. I've always said that man is, is, is put in the, 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 as, as leader of the, the, of the opposition to keep the seat warm so the next uh, shadow prime minister uh, on the Labour Party. He's keeping the seat warm for the next shadow prime minister. So, I, I, again, I don't see him actually being in charge of the Labour Party when it comes to election time. Okay, and I dread to think who it might be. <laughs> Put it that way. Well, I, it's it's grim reading everywhere because, uh, as you're saying, I mean, I saw Arthur Mass back on the TV this morning. Uh, you know, there's obviously still uh, he still seems to think that uh, he could be back in in favour, whereas obviously, um, I, I'm well, he will. I mean, he's the guy that was sentenced in his absence because he did a runner. Yeah. He was the guy that organised an illegal election in Catalonia for, for an independent Catalonia. And as soon as uh, the government had the cojones to say, well, hang on, that's totally illegal, and uh, took him to court, he did a runner into into Europe. Now, hang on, is Spain not in Europe? How come he, he took shelter in, in Belgium? Yeah. And he's been there ever since, floating around Belgium and France. He's on the run from... He's a criminal. <laughs> he's, a con, he's a convicted criminal. And the minute they, the Spanish authorities get their hands on him, he will go to jail. Except that Pedro Sanchez, the, the, the sitting prime minister at the moment, is trying to deal with Catalonia. And part of that deal will be that he will be exonerated of all crimes. So that's why Arturo Mas is in the news again. Uh, and God forbid the, 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 that that actually succeeds. Because if, if ever there's going to be a civil war again in Spain, that's the sort of thing that could just well cause it. I promise you. Because that is, the Spanish people are very, very proud people, a very proud nation. And somebody like Arturo Mas is basically, I can't remember the word for it now, but it's uh, where, where he's trying to undermine the government. Insurrectionist, isn't it? Yeah. Trying to under, undermine the government and being proven guilty thereof and convicted and done a runner. He, he has to go to jail. You know, in days gone by, I'd been hanging from a lamppost. It, it, he has to go to jail. And for any government to, to say, oh, well, no, he's, he's actually all right because we need his vote. Because that's what they've got to say. They've got to actually say, uh, no, we, we're going to take the charges, we're going to drop all charges against him, uh, redeem him of his crimes because we need his vote and his party. And that, in other words, they're going to, Pedro Sanchez will prostitute himself in the eyes of the Spaniards to get the vote. And I'm afraid that will cause, I'd rather to think what problems that will cause. Yeah. Well, I anticipate more VAR on on the football fields to get everybody talking so they can sneak it in through the back door. But maybe I'm sounding cynical. Here's the next one. Stand by, Terry. It's Europe Calling with Vince Tracy and Terry Whitehead. 
Okay, we're going to go back to the UK where a lorry driver who crashed into the back of a family's car, leaving an eight-year-old schoolgirl unable to think, talk or walk, has been sentenced to two and a half years in jail. Dominic Nichols, 53, smashed into a stationary Nissan X-Trail, which was on the hard shoulder of the M42 with the family inside. The car had broken down on the motorway in Warwickshire on April the 28th, and uh, this was 2022. Nichols' lorry drifted onto the hard shoulder for reasons unknown and collided with the rear of the X-Trail before the family had time to get out. This is the Crown Court at Warwick, and later on, uh, this guy from Ipswich, Nichols, had pleaded guilty to three counts of dangerous driving, causing serious injury at a previous hearing. At a hearing on October the 19th, he was sentenced to 30 months in jail, disqualified from holding or obtaining a driving licence for seven years, will have to pass an extended test to drive again. He was also ordered to pay £190 victim surcharge. Police said dash cam footage from the HGV showed that Nichols made no attempt to brake or take avoiding action prior to the collision. PC Craig Pearson of Warwickshire Police is serious collision investigation unit described the incident as a very sad and tragic case. He said Mr Nichols has never provided an explanation for why he allowed this HGV to travel directly onto the hard shoulder towards the family's X-Trail car. The overall responsibility for the speed and control of the vehicle must lay entirely within the hands of its driver, Dominic Nichols. The standard of driving falls far below what was expected of a careful and competent driver. We hope this sentence brings some comfort to the family whose lives have been devastated by what happened that day. Um, Personally, if it was my family and I'd lost my... um, well, my poor little eight-year-old schoolgirl unable to think, talk or walk as it's written and uh, they're talking about two and a half years which we all know isn't two and a half years it's probably one and a quarter years um, which is, you know, 15 months in jail Terry, I mean, I see this time and time again in the papers in the UK Is, is it that the judiciary are part of this uh, ongoing idea to try and enrage everybody because of the lack of sensible judgments. What do you think? Well, I'm with you. But uh, firstly, he, he never breaks, and he drifted into onto the hard shoulder. He's either a asleep, which is more than likely. B, he was texting. We'll see. The latest fad is watching a film while you're driving. Um, I'd imagine he dropped, fell asleep, and drifted onto the hard shoulder. Um, which I must admit I've done myself. It's uh, you know it, I'll have to admit I've done it myself. I do an awful lot of driving, and there are times when you're that tired, you, you do realise you've actually you've actually slept for a, a, a literally a couple of seconds. You realise you've you've dropped you've, you know, and then you wind the windows down rapid and get some air in, or you you pull over and have a rest. Um, but anybody driving, and especially somebody in a lorry, but any of us that drive a car, which is going to be most of us, are basically the same as. We're running down the road with a loaded AK-47 in our hands. And, yeah, we know we're not going to pull the trigger. Of course we're not. We do realise, yeah, that if we did pull the trigger, we could kill somebody. And if I fell over and, and, and the gun went off, it could kill anybody at random. I'm not going to, to purposely go and kill somebody with my AK-47. Well, that's exactly what we are. We're, we're driving vehicles which, which kill people. And we have to be more responsible about that. And... I, I must admit, the, 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 the latest wave, certainly in the UK, is getting the press of, of, of lower lower speed limits, is is, um, is is going to prove beneficial. Because it's happened here. We had the lower speed limits here about a year, 18 months ago, more, no, two, two years ago, <coughs> more probably. It started over here. And at the beginning, I must admit, I was really, really angry. Uh, on the motorways, we were allowed the same speed. That was basically the same. And then coming off the motorways, um, there was there were there were um, I think it's like 50 kilometres an hour, 60 kilometres an hour, on most roads, which is uh, 36 miles an hour uh, on most roads. And then when you get into a town, it would be uh, 30 kilometres an hour, which is 18 miles per hour. And when you get into the centre of the town, it's 20 kilometres an hour, which is 12 miles an hour. 
which makes everybody angry and frustrated and it does because we're not used to driving like this but having having got used to driving like that when i'm in built up areas and and keeping to the these lower speed limits i realize now well yeah it's going to take me another five minutes or ten minutes to cross this town but everyone's going to be an awful lot safer and now they've done that in wales i'm interested to see what happens you know you get an awful lot of flack the, the the guys in Wales can't remember his name now the, the socialist uh, yeah the first minister head of head of Wales government uh, parliament if you like he's, he he's brought in a, the the blanket speed limit across Wales and I wouldn't mind betting in a year's time that people will start to take to it a little bit they would realise that you don't I know I'm, I'm you know you're used to doing forty miles sixty mile an hour seventy mile an hour um, breaking the speed limit which we all do nobody can ever tell me they've never broke the speed limit because no. we've all done it we all think we can drive faster down a certain stretch of road because it's this ludicrous amount of uh, dual carriageway in the uk and it says 40 miles an hour i know i can do 60 down here because it's, it's dead straight and no one's on it but the minute you are forced to do these uh, lower speed limits and you 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 i personally realize how much safer it is i also realize how i'm using twice as much gas and chucking twice as much fumes up into the air so why the why the climate change people haven't been against it i don't know but i must admit i'm quite happy with the with reduced speed limits now as frustrating as they are i'm quite happy with that well i've always um like everybody else you enjoyed a car which can drive fast but i do think i've driven a lot more slowly over the years obviously as you see the impact of you know silly driving and i must admit when i'm say on i'm on i don't know 80 and or 90 and you see somebody go past 140 150 160 you yeah, think what, yeah. a, what an idiot yeah. um all right terry well yeah. we'll move on with the next one so uh here we go let's see what i've got now okay so Okay, so we're looking at an article which uh, billionaires uh, should be forced to pay at least 2% of their wealth in a global tax, according to a new report that says the world's wealthiest pay a lower rate than everyone else. This is the EU Tax Observatory and saying that the ultra-rich, the roughly 2,500 billionaires with a combined wealth of um, $13 trillion, are able to use complex networks of businesses to get away with paying lower tax rates than the average person. Billionaires are able to get away with paying tax rates equal to 0% or 0.5% of their wealth due to the frequent use of shell companies to avoid income taxation. The group, part of the Paris School of Economics, have been uh, producing this report, which later on goes to uh, praise a 2021 agreement between 140 different countries to make sure companies pay at least 15% in corporation tax, but added that the plan had been dramatically weakened since then by a growing list of loopholes. However, the report said that there are ways to significantly reduce offshore tax evasion, pointing to the automatic sharing of the account information of the wealthiest people across more than 100 countries. Joseph Stiglitz, the Nobel Prize-winning American economist who wrote the introduction to the report, said that taxation inequality is a threat to democracy. If citizens don't believe that everyone is paying their fair share of taxes, and especially if they see the rich and the rich corporations not paying their fair share, then they will begin to reject taxation. Why should they hand over their hard-earned money when the wealthy don't? This glaring tax disparity undermines the proper functioning of our democracy. It deepens inequality, weakens trust in institutions and erodes the social contract. Now, um, there's a point at which I tend to not really think clearly because, you know, when it comes to these, uh, they've given the figure as 2,500 billionaires 
and the, the shell companies. I think I can probably get my head around that one. Uh, but then the network of ways that they use all the powers they can to make sure they don't pay a fair tax. Do you think this is accurately written? And if yes. it's ah okay, okay. Well, then if that's the case, um, would you feel that uh, they should really just come up with a tax? Because we yes, <laughs> yes, it's pure greed. You're talking billionaires. Has nobody ever told them they cannot take it with them? Yeah. When they go, they'll die in a the box. They'll go in a box, the same as the rest of us, and there won't be anything in the pockets. They can't take it with them. And what they leave behind will be, be scrabbled with and fought by the family and all the rest of it. It's pure greed. It's, it's monopoly. How many houses on Mayfair do you want? It's pure monopoly. How much money do you actually need in this life? You don't need that. I do know people with money who are... Um, uh, uh, philanthropists yeah. who very quietly inject it into the economy very quietly they make donations here there they, they uh, sponsor little ventures here there and everywhere but that they are very few and very far between most of the people i know that have money are very miserable people they've worried all their lives making it and now they've worried themselves crapless trying to hang on to it just enjoy, for God's sake, enjoy your money, man. And to, for these people to evade uh, paying tax and, and gloat over the fact of money paying 0.5%, whereas I'm paying like 28% or something, it, us minions are making up the shortfall because they're earning vast amounts of more money than, than we're ever going to earn and paying paying less than we are, basically. It, and it's it's wrong. And it certainly gets a very bad image and it would it would stop an awful lot of friction in this world if if it didn't happen. But how are you going to stop it? You're never going to stop greed. But it's it's just these people should be outed and fronted. Yeah. It's just they're just greedy, greedy people. And I, it's, it's it's wrong on all on all counts to do that. I think uh, a lot of people they don't really understand, like I wouldn't, the absolute amount of money we're talking about with these people so if they've got that much money like you rightly say what are they going to do with it i mean you can't take it with you as you say so yeah i think we totally agree on that one i'm going to ask you yeah. uh, do you know this name garbine mugarutha who garbine mugarutha who's he play for <laughs> well we are going to discuss this so let's just get the uh, report right um, and here we go uh, now she's played her last match in January uh, 2030 no hang on sorry what? That, that's January the 30th it's been written wrong um, so uh, she is uh, one of Spain's great tennis players and this country have had some massively successful great players. She had a loss in Lyon in France against Linda Nascova, then ranked number 56 in the world. Soon after, she announced that she would take a break until the summer. Things changed and by late spring she realised that she wouldn't be competing this season. She needed a detox. Zero tennis. I'm not doing anything related to tennis on a regular basis, she told Women's Health. I keep up with friends who are players and occasionally play for fun, nothing intense. I'm taking a real break and trying to stay away from the courts. So later on, the winner of the French Open, so she's a, a big name, 2016, Wimbledon 2017 and the Masters Cup 2020 has only been spotted playing once recently. In July, she visited <coughs> the small town of Azcoita, northern Spain, with her father, Jose Antonio, who moved to Spain from Venezuela in 1978. Accompanied by 250 young players, the two inaugurated an indoor tennis facility named after Muguruza. Uh, later on, she went on to say, right now I have no plans of coming back former top-ranked player in the world. My plan is to just sleep, rest, spend time with the loved ones and make up for lost time. I'm not really thinking beyond that. Um, not really thinking beyond what I'm doing today, tomorrow and this week, you know. And uh, as for how I'm feeling about taking this break uh, that I announced back in mid-April, I must say I'm really enjoying it. 
I was just so tired of the pressure. Important thing coming up next. And being judged by the media and experts every week. So this breaks uh, is exactly what my mind and body needed. I'm genuinely loving every moment of it. Well, bloody good luck to her as well. How fantastic. Do you know, I was only thinking, I never follow tennis when it's Wimbledon week or something really important. When you realize, well, Wimbledon week, when you realise if they get through, the guys, the girls that get through to the finals, they're playing every other day to, 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 and the heat of Wimbledon uh, and the conditions that they're playing in um, and, and the levels of tennis that they're playing in and the, athlet, the athletics prowess that they must have and the mental capacity they must have to, to go on that court for four or five hours, solid, uh, swinging a racket at a, at a little yellow ball. It's, it amazes me that you don't get um, more mental illness in... There has been history of it over the years, if you think about it, where players have dropped out. But in tennis especially, uh, it amazes me how there's not more mental illness and, and, and tragedy um, within the tennis world. It's because it's the oppressive week after week after week nature of the tournaments that the TV insists on having because they're making the money out of the advertising. And the top players have to appear at these tournaments. And they do it. Now, what life have they had? When they come to the end of their days, I mean, you, you just had, uh, I mean, Rafa Nadal, bless him, he's had to retire. Um, and then and then uh, the Swiss guy. Um, Roger Federer. Federer. Yeah. Federer has retired. I'm, I'm good. He could have retired a couple of years ago. You know, why don't they? What's the Welsh boxer? Joe Calzaghi, uh, wasn't Calzaghi, yeah. Right. He did the right thing. He actually got out of the top. He, he got to the top of his game. And retired, and, he, and he's one of the few I can think of who actually did it. Who got to the top of his prowess in his in his in his athletics game as a boxer, and retired. I thought, bloody good for you. You've done what you had to do. You've reached the pinnacle of your career. Now you step back, and now you have a life. Yeah. Because these people now, it's not like 50 years ago. The athletes of 50 years. Look at the footballers of 50 years ago. They've all got beer bellies. They're all smoking fags, uh, and down the pubs and the rest of it. The 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 level of training necessary and the disruption, complete disruption to your family life is enormous. Why? Because we need feeding. Mm. We, the public, demand that that's on our television set week in, week out. You've now got football football teams playing three matches a week because we demand it. We must have that. But we don't we really, it. do we? It's it's the marketing people. It's these yeah. it's these people who basically are now beginning to, uh, to to act as if they want to control everything. I mean, re- realistically, I want to stay with this um, Margaretha because I think okay. she she really uh, has been fantastic. And to think we've got her uh, and Alvarez, uh, Alvarez, I think his name was the the young twenty one year old. I think he was uh, that's just. Uh, yeah. won the titles and is still around and of course we've yeah. had Rafa Nadal and um, you know uh, San, oh, I can't remember the name the, the Pancho Gonzalez that's right can remember him playing uh, a 50 set game somewhere I think it was Wimbledon I think um, yeah well, a, yeah I remember there was, uh, it was, it was, it was a tie break that went on for what was, was a tie break wasn't it, so it went, yeah <laughs> it's a 50 or 60 uh, tie break oh it's amazing I mean, when, but, uh, when when we look at our players that have come from Spain, um, we've had some amazing players from this country, haven't we? we? Have. Yeah, we have. Spain's been been very prolific in, in in the tennis world, and in the golfing world. Um, some of the finest golfers, I mean, Sevilla Ballesteros, been been the been the player to that comes to mind. Bless him. Yeah. Um, but it's it's um, from athletics. It, it's which from a very poor country, athletic wise. When I first came here, there was nothing. Back in 74, 3, 4. Yeah. Um, 74. There was nothing. I mean, so they've really come on the map since then. And we have the climate. We have the climate that other countries would love to have. Yeah. And an awful lot of uh, cricketers and footballers uh, come to Spain in the in the close season. Wherever they can get away, if there's a, a two-week international break, they'll come to Spain and take advantage of the weather so they can train in a, in a decent climate. So really, it's a breeding ground. Okay. For, for athletes, if, and uh, I'm surprised that Spain isn't bigger in the world of, of athletics than it is. Yeah. Well, Terry, I we've... mean, athletics in general. I mean, you know, not just athletics, but tennis and football. 
etc. We're right on the hour. I, you know, oh, right. it seems as if uh, whatever it is, uh, there's always masses still to talk about. But I think we got through some very healthy stuff. We have this. We have. And I think we'll also finish by saying that uh, both of us feel that we would like a little bit of peace and stability to reign in the Middle East and no, Ukraine. You, you, can't, you can't let the bloke next door keep jumping over the fence and, and murdering your kids. No. No, you can't. You've got to jump back over that fence sometimes and sort him out. Yeah. Terry, thanks for your company and uh, look forward to next week. Cheers, Vince. Thank you, Terry. Bye-bye.